I'm going to start with a little quiz this morning. I think you'll find these are pretty easy to answer. What bird is the national emblem of the United States? The eagle, yeah. What animal is the national emblem of Russia? The bear, yeah. What leaf is the national emblem of Canada? The maple leaf. <laughs> this one might be a little harder. What animal is the national emblem of India? It's the lion. The lion, yeah. And which tree, which tree is a national emblem of Albania, Greece, Italy, and Israel? The olive tree, yeah. Israel has two predominant national emblems, the vine and the olive tree, and both of these are used throughout the Bible. In fact, the symbol of the, bi the vine is used in Psalm 80, if you want to, to turn to that, uh, the 80th Psalm beginning at verse 7, Psalm 80, verse 7, where, where the psalmist is asking God to restore Israel, to restore them. And here the vine is used as a symbol of God's blessing, beginning at verse 7 of Psalm 80. And the psalmist prays, O God of hosts, restore us, and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. And then speaking of Israel, the psalmist recounts how God took the vine out of Egypt when they were slaves in Egypt. He says, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadows and the cedars of God with its boughs. So that's the vine. That's just one place where the vine is used. The other predominant emblem of Israel is the olive tree. And the landscape of Israel is spotted by beautiful olive trees and, and olive groves. In fact, uh, so precious is olive wood in Israel, and there's not much wood in Israel, that unless you buy a sculpted olive wood piece in a store and legally take it out, you cannot remove olive wood from Israel. It's against the law, against customs to take olive wood out of Israel. And you'll remember while in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples retreated to the Mount of Olives on a regular basis. The mountain on the, the east side, the mountain side is covered with olive trees. And on the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means olive press, olive press. So it's appropriate that it was Gethsemane, the olive press, where Jesus felt the most severe pressure of taking on the sins of the world. Now, some of the trees in the Garden of Gethsemane today are over 900 years old. 900 years old. Some in Cyprus, some of the olive trees, are over 2,000 years old. And this week, uh, uh, Joe sent me a Facebook page where there was some kind of trees in Tanzania. How old was it? 4,000? Well, 6,000 years old. It wasn't an olive tree, but it's amazing that, that these kind of trees can, can live so long. And the olive tree, therefore... It's a symbol of stability. It's a symbol of strength and endurance and even peace. You extend what? An olive branch to make peace. Symbol of prosperity. And so Israel today, in Israel today, the olive tree is a proud symbol of their natural or national identity and of their great natural resource, the olive tree. But when the olive tree is used in Scripture to describe Israel, it has somewhat to do with its blessing, like the vine, but it's often used as a description of judgment. 
And we find this in Jeremiah chapter 11, the 11th chapter of Jeremiah, at verse 16. Jeremiah here talks about the beauty of Israel like an olive tree. In chapter 11 of Jeremiah, beginning at the 16th verse, the Lord says, The Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. But then it talks about the judgment. With the noise of a great tumult, tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are worthless. The Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced evil against you because of the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done to provoke me by offering up sacrifices to Baal. And if you want to turn to another one, turn to Hosea chapter 14. I know Hosea is a little bit hard to find. If you can find Daniel, which is a little bit bigger, Hosea comes right after. Hosea chapter 14, because here the prophet Hosea speaks to the restoration of Israel as a beautiful olive tree. The Lord pronounces the future blessing of Israel. In the 14th chapter of Hosea, got you turning so far, we'll slow down in a little while. Hosea chapter 14, beginning at verse 4. God says of Israel's future blessing, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like what? Be like the olive tree. And his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Can you smell the, the cedar even as you think about that? Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. There's coming a day when Israel's beauty will once again be like the olive tree. Where it'll take root like the cedars of Lebanon. And it's going to blossom like a lily. I had to look it up. So what was the beauty of an olive tree? When it blossoms, it's really tight clusters of a lot of blossoms, and it's brilliant yellow and white. It's very beautiful. But today, in our day as well as the Apostle Paul's day, Israel is a broken olive tree. Most of its branches have been broken off, and others have been grafted in. So please turn once again to Romans chapter 11, the 16th verse. In our text today. In the 11th chapter of Romans, verse 16, the Apostle Paul uses two symbols or metaphors or emblems to describe Israel. And the first that he uses is like a, a lump of bread dough, a lump of bread dough. And then Paul talks about the root and the branches of an olive tree. And he says in verse 16, For if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. And with the bread dough here, God, or Paul is talking about the Old Testament in the law where they would consecrate the bread to the Lord. If the first part of the dough is offered or consecrated as the first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. When a representative piece of bread or dough, bread dough is consecrated to God, the whole belongs to him. The whole batch is holy. And then Paul changes the metaphor. And if the root is holy, the branches are also. So now he's talking about here the olive tree, the root, the trunk. 
If the root is set apart, if the root is consecrated to God, if the root is holy, holy, then also the branches that come from that root are holy as well. It's the same idea of the lump of dough consecrated to the Lord. If one part is consecrated, then the whole thing is. Here, if the root is consecrated to the Lord, so are the branches. So you go out into your field in Israel and you say, I'm planting this tree and I'm putting this little sapling into the ground and its roots, as they go down deep, I dedicate it to the Lord. Then all that comes out is going to be dedicated to him as well. It's like saying, I put it there for your glory, for your honor, Lord. I want everything that comes from it to nourish me. Why? So that I might serve you faithfully. God, nourish me through this that I might serve you. And so in the dedication of the root, there's the implication that the branches belong to God as well. So when any small part is devoted to the Lord, it's emblematic that the whole thing is devoted or consecrated to the Lord. Now, the root in the trunk of the olive tree, it's his most distinctive characteristic, other than the blossoms. I, I don't mean the beauties in the blossom, but when you look at an olive tree, the first thing you notice is this massive trunk and these, the, these roots. It's because of its roots and its trunk that the olive tree lasts and flourishes for hundreds of years. The roots continue to grow and deepen. Its trunk gets larger and larger. And the reason that olive trees aren't very tall in Israel or any place else is that when the branches are no longer productive, they're cut off. And other branches from a cultivated olive, about six inches long, are grafted in into the, the olive tree. Now, I watched one video, and it was from Israel, where there was a trunk of an olive tree, and it was about 24 inches around, and there was five or six main branches coming up, and they were about four inches around, and they just cut off all the branches just about that far off of the, the trunk. And so all you had was this trunk and these branches coming up about four inches, just cut off clear across the top. The whole tree was only about six or, or, or three feet tall, and it was just this stump with these cut off branches looking like logs just sticking up. No leaves, no branches, no buds, no nothing. And into the top of these four-inch branches, they made little slits in the side, three into each branch. They just put their knife down and kind of opened it up so the bark separated slightly from, from the log part. And they sharpened these uh, six-inch branches from a cultivated olive that were about six inches long, and they had three or four buds on them. And then they just sharpened the ends so it was just a flat, flat piece. And then they inserted that down into the bark. And it probably only went in maybe an inch or an inch and a half at the most, probably about an inch. And they, they put three of those into each stump. And it's just this funny little thing with, you know, sticking up. And, and then they took blue plastic wrap, you know, which was probably the packing wrap that they use when you go to UPS or something like that. And, and then they wrapped it around, and they, they put some kind of stuff on it. I couldn't really tell what it was from the video. And then they just put this little tent over it uh, to protect it from, from the sunlight. And uh, that was, was all that there is there. 
you know, and that's what the cycle is going to be for, for hundreds of years. It's going to be a cycle of cutting off branches and then grafting in new branches. And so what it, Paul is intending by these analogies of the bread dough and the olive tree is, and this is really a wonderful thought, if one portion of the Jewish people are consecrated to the Lord, then all the rest will be also. And who were the first fruits of Israel? Another way to put it, who is the, the root? What is the rootstock of Israel? And we know it from the Old Testament. There was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the fathers and the patriarchs. So, so basically you had Abraham as the trunk, the rootstock. And from that, you have these other branches, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the fathers, and the patriarchs. But mainly, the Apostle Paul has Abraham in mind here. Abraham was the father of faith. And if God set apart Abraham as the first fruits using the dough idea, then he's setting apart the whole bunch. And if God set apart Abraham as the root, then God is setting apart the branches as well. He has consecrated to himself the whole, the whole, the whole of Israel to himself. And so here in Romans, the cultivated olive is the people of God, whose root is the patriarchs, particularly Abraham. But he says some of the branches have been broken off, referring to the unbelieving Jews who have been temporarily hardened and set aside, temporarily discarded, because they rejected Christ. But others, Gentile believers, have been what? Grafted in. They have been grafted in among the others. There's still a few branches remaining. They're the Jewish remnant who have believed in Christ. They remain in, in the tree. So you have branches that are Jewish believers in Christ and branches, Gentile believers, who have been grafted in. And so that's what Paul is doing in this metaphor in uh, Romans chapter 11. And in using this metaphor of the olive tree and the grafting, cutting off and grafting in, Paul is giving a warning to Gentile believers here, whom he calls wild olives. And it's really quite a stern warning, a warning to those who have been grafted in. We see it in verse 17 of Romans chapter 11. But if some of the branches were broken off, that is, the, some of the Jewish branches, because they didn't believe, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and become partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Then he says, do not be arrogant towards the branches. For if you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Now it is, when they take a branch and they're going to graft it in, what, what kind of branch do they take? They, they take a branch that's already got buds on it. They take a branch that's from a cultivated olive, that it's already fruitful. And, and oftentimes they will find a wild stock, a wild trunk. There's a, an olive tree that's coming up and it's got good roots and it's got good trunk and stock. And, and then the wild trunk becomes productive through the cultivated branches. But Paul is talking just about the, all, the, the opposite here. He's, he's grafting a wild olive branch into a cultivated stock. No, no one would want to do that. That's contrary to nature. And I know we would ask, uh, why would you take a sucker shoot, you know, maybe off a rose bush or something? You know, the suckers come up and they don't ever blossom. Why would you take a sucker shoot and graft that into the regular rose bush? 
You wouldn't because you still wouldn't get roses. It doesn't blossom. It doesn't bear fruit. And it's the same way with the olive tree. You take a wild branch and you graft it in and into a healthy plant. So it makes no sense. And Paul admits that in verse 24. He says, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, if you're a branch taken off what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Of course, he's, he's jumping ahead here because the natural branches, the Jews will be grafted back in. But as, as, as Gentile believers, we do not naturally belong. The Jews naturally belong. We're a wild olive. And as a wild olive, there's no pr production or beauty or anything uh, whatsoever. And it's the most natural thing in the world for a Jew to believe in Christ and be grafted back into their own olive tree. But, but being a wild olive tree, Paul's saying, you Gentiles became partakers, and the word is koinonia there, shares with the natural branches of the rich root of the olive tree. It literally, it says, you became shares in the root of fatness. The root of fatness. The nourishing, fattening sap. It flows into you even though you are not a natural vine. And you flourish and produce fruit. Now that's contrary to natural nature, as it were, but that's the way it works in, in God's, uh, God's kingdom. And so the first warning that Paul gives to Gentile believers is this. Remember your dependence upon the root. Remember your dependence upon the root. You do not support the root. The root supports you. Verse 18, do not be arrogant towards the branches. That is, don't feel superior. Don't be haughty. Don't look down upon the natural branches of the Jews. And then he says, but if you are arrogant, remember this, that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. The warning to the Gentile believers is clear. The olive has experienced both a pruning and a grafting. Some branches have been cut off of the cultivated tree, and some of the Jews have been rejected. And in their place, a wild shoot has been grafted in. Some Gentiles have believed and are welcomed into God's covenant people. So do not boast over this. Remember, you do not support the root the root supports you. Now, why would Paul give a warning? Don't, don't be arrogant about this. Don't be arrogant towards the Jews. Don't feel that you're superior over the Jews who have been cut off. And the reason this is because there's a real possibility that Gentile believers would be arrogant. And 2,000 years of even Christian history has proven that. It's the idea that the Jews were cut off because they were disobedient. And we are, are so blessed, and there must have been something about us that God looked at us, and, and we must have been so much better than the Jews because they've, they've been cut off. And the history of anti-Semitism and persecution of the Jews, even by the institutional church, has proven that many Gentiles believe that they are blessed in and among themselves, as separate from, from, from Judaism. That they were able to accept Christ because they're something the special, and that the Jews are to be hated because they rejected Christ. For centuries, the institutional church over the centuries referred to the Jews as God-killers or Christ-killers. 
And that was true even in, in the Reformation. Blaming them for the death of Christ. And then they were persecuted. Uh, one of my bosses in Kansas City at the architect's office was, was Jewish, a really, a really neat guy. And he came in one day and he was late for an appointment that I had with him. And he said, well, I'm sorry I'm late. And uh, he said, we were getting passports for our family. And I said, oh, passports, where are you going? He said, well, nowhere. And I said, why would you get passports? And he said, because we've been killed and persecuted in every country we have lived in. And so we get passports when we can, we can get them. The anti-Semitism, all you got to do is look at the UN and all the different resolutions they pass against, uh, against Israel. And so it's not uncommon for those who call themselves Christians and are part of the Christian church to, to greatly persecute uh, the Jews. We should not feel superior over them in any way whatsoever because... We are blessed as Gentile believers. We are blessed as Gentile believers only because we are blessed by being connected to the Abrahamic root. Another way to put it, there'd be no Christianity if it wasn't for Judaism. There'd be no Christianity. We are blessed by becoming people of an Abrahamic covenant through spiritual heritage. If we as Gentiles have any blessing from God, it's because we are blessed, as it were, through faithful Abraham. We are blessed because we have been grafted into the stock of Semitic blessing. Salvation, our Lord said in John 4.22, is of the Jews. We draw all our fatness, we partake all the blessing that we have in Christ because we are grafted into the covenant of salvation that God made with Abraham. So there's no reason to boast as if we are the root. We aren't. We have been grafted onto a root of blessedness by the grace of God. We see this over in Galatians chapter 3, the third chapter of Galatians, beginning at the sixth verse. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul writes, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure, know this, literally, that is, those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are what? Blessed with Abraham, the believer. What is the source of our blessing? What is the root? We are blessed with, with Abraham. And then you go down to verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, what? The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It's the blessing of Abraham. God said to Abraham, I'm going to redeem all the nations through you. I'm going to bring salvation through you. And only as we enter into the tent of Abraham, as it were, only as we hook up with those who came out of the loins of Abraham and those who wrote scripture, and in fact, only as we hook up or we stand by faith with the Jewish Messiah himself, we are blessed. We are rooted in, in Abraham. And the second warning is this that Paul gives to Gentile believers is 
Reflect that your stability is due to your faith alone. Back to Romans chapter 11 again, the 19th verse. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul says, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. You stand by your faith. You're only able to stand in the tree, as it were, by your faith. The only issue is believing or not believing. That's the issue through the whole book of Romans. You don't, do you have the same faith as Abraham, or don't you? Yes, the believing Gentile, by faith, now stands in place of the Jew, grafted into the olive, but the Gentile has no natural superiority over the Jew. He stands in place of the Jew only because of God's mercy. Only because God's mercy and only because of God's saving act, saving action in Christ. The Jews' rejection arose from the fact that they did not appropriate this salvation by faith. The Gentile was accepted only because he did appropriate it. In himself and among himself, he's nothing. He cannot stand at all. He should not be complacent as he contemplates his salvation and the loss of the Jews. So says Paul, do not be arrogant, but afraid. Verse 20, again. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited. Do not think that you're superior, but fear. But fear. And then he gives a reason for the fear here. For if God did not spare the natural branches... He will not spare you either. Boy, that sounds like something coming from or coming to a people who believe in what we call eternal security, the perseverance of the believer, once saved, always saved. If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. John Calvin wrote, We should never think of the rejection of the Jews without being struck with dread and terror. Dread and terror. And Paul gives another warning here about pride. Don't be conceited. Don't be arrogant. Three times in this passage, Paul says to the Gentile believers to don't be arrogant. Do not be proud. Don't be conceited. Don't think that you're better than, than the Jews because, because you're a Christian. Another way to put it is don't be a racist. Don't be a racist in this thing. And this goes to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. You see, pride on one side and fear of God are mutually exclusive. It's got to be one or the other. Put another way, once a person is prideful, he's not a person of faith. Once a person is prideful, he's not a person of faith. Once he is prideful, he's dependent upon who he is and what he has done and his identity and all these things for his spiritual attainment. That's what pride tries to do. And both the apostles Peter and James quote Psalms 334, says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If there's any reason to be fearful, this should be it. That we would become prideful and that God would oppose us. Because that's what God does. God would be against us. God is against the prideful. The arrogant boast as if they're the root. 
This is what I can do. This is what I have done. This is, I know I can do this, and I'm proud of this. And they think their spiritual attainments are their own. And one commentator puts it this way, speaking of this kind of arrogant person. The moment he begins to grow boastful, he ceases to have faith. He ceases to have a humble dependence upon God, and therefore he himself becomes a candidate for cutting off. To trust in God and to be proud of one's spiritual achievement are mutually exclusive. It's got to be one or the other. And instead of being arrogant, Paul counsels the reader to be afraid, to fear. You should feel awe, you should feel all of God, that reverential fear of God, but also terror in what God does to the proud. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And it's a strong, frightful, terrifying picture. If the people who came out of the loins of Abraham, who were the natural trunk of blessing, if God did not spare the natural branches from such a breaking off, from such a judgment, why should he spare the Gentiles from it? Therefore, there's absolutely no basis for Gentile boasting. And and this brings us to the final warning. Paul says, basically, constantly meditate on the character of God, otherwise you'll be cut off. And the character of God here is his kindness, but it's also his severity. Verse 22, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll also be cut off. This verse begins to get at the nature of saving faith. Yes, Scripture does teach that once we are saved, we're always saved. And we'll look at some of those passages in a little bit. That that no one can take us out of the shepherd's hand. You know, Jesus said, no one can remove them, take them out of my hand. Jesus said to the Father, those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Haven't lost a one of them. But it also teaches that if you go on boasting, you'll be cut off. So the main question we need to grapple with here is how this threat fits. And it really is a threat. How does it fit with the biblical teaching of eternal security and the perseverance of the saints? Can can we teach the genuine believer in Christ, a person who has been born again by the Spirit of God and is justified by faith, should be threatened this way? Should we take this as a real threat that, wow, we could really get cut off? Does such a threat imply that Paul believed genuine believers, regenerated, justified people could perish? Well, it's a yes and a no. The answer is yes in this regard. We should use these kinds of threats when we speak to the church, which has in it genuine believers and false believers. And probably every church does, has the wheat and the tares. And no, this does not apply or imply that Paul thought genuine believers could lose their salvation. So what is the basis for affirming these two things? The basis is that both are in the Bible. There are the warnings. There are the threats, as it it were. The Bible teaches that God will cause his elect people to persevere to the end in faith. Not a perfect faith, not a faith without struggles, but we will persevere to the end. And the Bible threatens Christians in general, if they make shipwreck of their faith, they're going to be cut off. 
And this is not inconsistent in that these threats are one of the means, and this is why it's not inconsistent. God uses these kinds of threats to keep his people faithful to the end. When we hear about the severity of God, we fall on our knees before God and say, God, thank you that I believe in you, that I'm one of yours. And it's not in my strength, but I will persevere to the end because you will give me what it takes. And so on the one hand, when he gives a threat like this, don't become proud, don't boast over the unbelieving Jews, otherwise you'll be cut off too. The true believer takes it to heart and we stand in awe of God. We fear. We tremble at how fragile we are as human beings. We, de- we tremble at how dependent we are on the grace of God. And we tremble and wonder about how authentic we are and, and how urgent it is that, that we prove real in our behavior. And in this way, that kind of threat keeps us from falling because we're constantly throwing ourselves upon the grace of God pressing ourselves into God because we are frail, fragile human beings and he is the one who keeps us. And on the other hand, the hypocrites in the church, the pretenders, the people who are not really spiritual and are only going through some kind of religious motions, do not tremble humbly at the warnings of the Bible. In fact, they may even use the doctrine of election and eternal security or perseverance to justify their indifference to these kind of texts. Well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not worrying about that. Hey, I'm good because it says right here in such and such verse, it says, is I good? I'm good. Is I good? (laughs) Yeah, I should ask that question. And this is a sign that they are really in great spiritual danger. And they may not be true Christians at all. So I want us to see for sure that the Bible does teach that God will keep his own And though we may stumble in this life and stumble often, he will not let us fall utterly and abandon the faith. So I just want you to listen to these promises. Don't need to look them up. This was promised as part of the new covenant in the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40, God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. (laughs) There's that fear again. God will put the fear of him into our hearts. Why? So they will not turn away from me. God will work so deeply and transformingly in the hearts of his people that they will always come back to him as their treasure over all the idols of the world. And then in the New Testament, we find the same teaching. Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it to the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Jesus Christ who also confirm you to the end in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Confirm you to the end. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what about those who seem to be Christians or seem to be Christians but have gone away from the faith, never to return. The Apostle John writes about them like this in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. 
And the teaching here is very clear. Someone can be part of the church, baptized even, eating the Lord's Supper, attending worship, morally upright on the outside, but not of us. That is, not truly born again and not truly trusting in Jesus Christ. Not justified. For if they'd been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. The teaching is not where they once saved and they lost it. The teaching is they proved by their failure to persevere that they were not saved to begin with. They're not one of us. Or as Hebrews 3.14 puts it, For we share, literally have shared in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we hold firm to the end, that's, that proves that we have shared, become partakers of Christ. Our perseverance to the end is the ongoing evidence that we have become a partaker of Christ. And if we don't persevere, then we never were a partaker of Christ. And Paul concludes this section in Romans with a promise. A promise of faith that, that anyone can be grafted in. In verse 23 of Romans chapter 11, speaking of the Jews, Paul writes, And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, if they don't continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, if that worked, and that doesn't work in nature, but it works in God, (laughs) then how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And so that just sets it up for next Sunday when we see that marvelous portion of Scripture where Paul says, And so all Israel will be saved. There's coming that glorious time in what we call the Great Tribulation period. Why is God going to allow the world to go through a Great Tribulation? Because a lot of it's judgment upon the world. The severity of God, the Great Tribulation period, with all the things we read about in Revelation, and all the wrath, and all the bulls of this and that, and all the horror, and all the people dying, and all the natural disasters, and, and all of that. That's the severity of God. So where's the kindness of God? The Lord uses that to bring his old covenant people to himself. Kind of a sad thing that that's what's going to take to redeem them. But that's the kindness of God that God is going to use. And during that time of great tribulation, all Israel, every Jew that is alive at that time, everyone will be saved will be grafted back into the stock of Abrahamic blessing. Shall we pray? Father, we just have to marvel and and wonder at your promises and how you work these things out, Lord. we, We thank you, Father. Even though we were wild wild olives, wild branches, in no way connected to your grace, to your mercy, to your Holy Spirit, to your salvation. That, Father, by grace, you chose us and grafted us into this beautiful 
olive tree, the root of Abraham that goes down deep, deep. And Father, we thank you that we persevere by the faith that you have given us. And we really are grafted in to the root of promise. All the promises of God are yes, yes in you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name.